0: Hello and welcome to the SportsMap podcast. I'm your host, Nick Kane, and this is the podcast where we're talking all things sports medicine, physiotherapy, rehabilitation, and return to performance. We have a tremendous podcast for you today. We're ch- chatting to Jacqueline Benz. Now, Jacqueline is the lead physio for the Matildas football team, and that's the national women's football team here in Australia. They recently took the nation by storm with their tremendous performance towards uh, coming fourth in the World Cup and it's a great chat with Jacqueline around uh, I guess the day-to-day workings within the, the campaign uh, and some of Jacqueline's learnings from that and also some amazing insights into the injury of Sam Kerr which was the most talked about injury for years and so it was really great to I guess go behind closed doors within the inner sanctum uh, where there was huge pressures externally around this injury and, and being a marquee player and uh, to the really supportive internal system, what it sounded like from the coaches to the player or the athlete and the rest of the medical team. So very thankful for Jacqueline to be able to jump on and provide that insight to us and also to Sam Kerr for allowing her to talk to the injury and provide some great learnings for us all. Uh, and I think you know everyone will really enjoy this unique podcast with Jacqueline. Now, staying on the topic of calf injuries, our most recent masterclass was on Calf Injuries in Endurance Runners with Kevin Lieberthal, which was a tremendous insight into managing these difficult injuries in a population subset that run lots and lots of kilometers. So it's a little bit of a different management strategy to, I guess, some of our field sport athletes um, that Jacqueline will talk to in today's podcast. So certainly check that out. Uh, We also have, obviously, Brady Green's podcast, which is up there on calf injuries um, some episodes back. So plenty of great resources there to tap into uh, and plenty of great new masterclass platform content coming, I know Nick King's recently been put up, so stay in tune there, Uh, seven day free trial across at sportsmap.com.au. And now event wise, we are super excited, we have got a brand new conference coming, it's February 10th and 11th in Melbourne, it's called How I Rehab, and that is a a, a fantastic list of around 12 to 14 presenters across two days, uh, delivering scope into how they rehab certain injuries, or whether it's a system based model to how they put together their rehab. So from Darren Burgess to sophie emery from australian ballet uh, jane rooney uh, michael o'brien on hip dysplasia brady green as i mentioned on calf injuries Ma- michael g Kumis from british athletics on hamstrings hamstring injuries uh, brian field on ac joint injuries and we've got a list that will be continuing to grow in that presenter lineup uh, we're looking forward to hosting places will be super limited uh, so get in early there will be a couple of pre-conference workshops and some music and entertainment there on the weekend so looking forward to hosting everyone uh, in Melbourne for that conference. Okay, so as I mentioned, great to be able to chat with Jacqueline around the Matildas and the, the campaign there and, and Sam Kerr's calf injury. So I uh, hope you enjoy and thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the Sportsbat podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Now, uh, we've been very excited to get you on and have this chat because uh, we are actually talking around doing this uh, at times probably before the World Cup uh, and then obviously you were flat out during the World Cup period and we all watched from afar how well um, the Australian team did and and also a key injury within that program. So um, I guess, yeah, super pumped to just talk about that experience and everything that came with it. Um, but before we jump into some of the bits along those lines, can you fill us in a little bit on yourself uh, and, you know, your pathway as a physio to being uh, the head physio for the Matildas?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, yeah, the World Cup was an incredible experience and something I think you only get to experience once in a lifetime, so it was really fantastic. Um, I grew up in the country and then moved to Newcastle and did my Bachelor of Physio with Honours at the Newcastle University. And while I was studying at university, they had sports trainer roles come up with the local MPL football team. So I started working with them and then one of the coaches that I worked with there then subsequently got a role with the N-Swiss team which was based in Newcastle was a a branch of N-Swiss so I started working with him there and then he went to the Newcastle Jets women's team and took me with him as well and from there we had a couple of players I think while I was at there I started possibly doing my master's in sports physio as well through the Trobe Uni And through working at the Jets, I then had to deal with a national team set up at the time who was Kate Beerworth, the head physio, and Dave Batterley was the assistant physio. And dealing with athletes there, we established a good working relationship. And when a a job opportunity came up in the junior teams, they asked me if I was interested. And of course, I was. i jumped at that chance and thankfully got that role. And then worked in the junior and the young Matildas for quite a few years and got to do a couple of sort of days of observing within the Matildas while Kate and Dave were there. And then when Kate left, Dave took over the head role and then I stepped in as the assistant physio with Dave and then worked for a full cycle so from uh, Olympic qualifiers to Olympics World Cup with him, worked with him for a long time. And then when he left after the Tokyo Olympics, then the head roll came available and then I was lucky enough to get the head roll and have done that since yeah, since the Tokyo Olympics.
0: Okay. So you've really had a, a full journey right from, you know, the, the very start of, I guess, intro level uh, soccer and being a trainer all the way up. Um, along that journey, I, I guess you would have come across a number of, uh, you know, people to learn off and guys that you felt uh, have influenced you. Who, who would they be along that journey?
1: Yeah, I think uh, Dave Battersby is probably one of the biggest one working with him. He's, I would say, he's one of the best physios that I've worked with. He's very level-headed, very calm. Not much gets to him, so he's very good under pressure. Has a very good way of approaching things and managing people. So I think working with him, I had a huge benefit from working with him. And then even doing my master's degree. I got to do a few pracs uh, at the AIS which was really good so working with a few of the physios down there and then probably just a few even physios that you just come across like dealing with Kate Beesworth while she was the head physio and I was working at the Newcastle Jets I was still relatively inexperienced at the time but having people like that who were more than happy for you to reach out to them and ask questions and learn off them was probably the best thing I'd say and, and not being afraid to actually reach out when you didn't know or you weren't sure or even if you were just looking to get some confirmation that what you were thinking what you were doing was the correct way they're probably the big ones that I would say and even some of the sports doctors that I've learned or worked with as well so our old sports doc James Illich he was very experienced had been around for a long time worked with so many different sports and learnt a lot from him and then even now our team Dot Brandy Cole, she's had sort of different pathway and different experiences as well. So I don't know, I think you're always learning and even working now with some of our assistant physios and our junior physios, I think you still have things to learn even from them as well.
0: Yeah, certainly. Um, Often in soccer or certainly in the past um, or soccer or football, know they really loved people who had a a background in that having maybe played the sport or an experience in that is that something you had did you come into the football or soccer field with an experience uh in the past and and if not I guess where do you see yourself now you're a big football sort of person or more of just a a physio person
1: yeah I'm definitely not the ex-footballer uh I always have loved all sport, but definitely was not someone who played a lot of football growing up, so I'm probably a bit of an unusual one in that respect. I do like like working football and I think I sort of almost fell into it I guess at university but really enjoyed the game and then have developed such a, a bigger love for it. So while I sometimes I definitely don't have the football skills when we're doing rehab work with the girls, I think it doesn't necessarily matter in my we've got other people that can do, you know, if we need to do technical work, we've got other people around that can do that. But I definitely have a love for the game now that I didn't have before I started working with it.
0: And I guess uh, I'm sure you would have loved the World Cup experience and obviously uh, that just gripped all of Australia um, and was sort of the hottest topic going around for a very long time and the team did such a great job. Can you fill us in and just take us into, I guess, some of your insights around that experience, a little bit of, about what the day-to-day sort of stuff looked like, and um, you know, and, and yeah, overall sort of take on on that experience, which I'm sure would have been pretty cool.
1: Yeah, it was a really incredible and once-in-a-lifetime experience that I feel so lucky to have been involved with. When when we were planning for it, we've been planning for it for three years essentially. As soon as we found out that we had the World Cup, that's been our big focus and all of our players' big focus. So there's so much planning that went on behind the scenes and we went into also planning on prepping plays and staff for the external demands, so the media, the pressure, you know, internal and external pressure that would happen in the World Cup. And while I think we did that, I don't think any of us could have ever predicted that it was going to be as big as what it was going to be and that the players would have had the support of Australia like they did, which was incredible. So it definitely did all of our expectations and a big goal, I think, of Football Australia was to leave a legacy from the World Cup and I definitely think our players were very successful in doing that. And coming forth was obviously a, a bittersweet ending because it's still an amazing achievement and outcome, but when you lose, you know, your last two games of a World Cup at home, it does leave a little bit of a, a, a different ending and I think it took a little while for everybody to then be able to flip around and go, well, actually, even though we lost and came fourth, that's still incredible and, you know, they've left a great legacy and I think the players all realise now, you know, what they've done and are really proud of what they've achieved
0: as well. And, um, yeah, to fill us a, a little bit in, so let's say, uh, I guess can you take us through how, how a training day might work for you as you, as the physio and Um, your role within obviously prepping the players for training and working through, um, you know, any niggles or concerns and then a little bit as well uh, around game day and and how you integrated with the the rest of the medical and high-performance team throughout.
1: Yeah, for sure. So we were in camp for 10 weeks from start to finish. So we started off with our pre-camp and, again, we sort of had the three months before that was just solely planning. So we had individual plans for each player from our predicted squad to our extended squad. We had probably six to eight players who came into our pre-camp who were injured at the time or just, you know, at different levels of their return to play. So that was a really tricky time and that was really busy for us because we had, you know, in any one week we would have players training on alternate days, doing different bits and pieces, coming in and out of drills, and then we would have to fill their rehab drills outside of that off-heat conditioning you know, all that sort of planning. So those days were very different to once we got into the World Cup, but generally a sort of standard day, just a training day in in the World Cup or a major tournament would be we would normally have reviews of any players who had flagged any concerns the evening prior. So anyone who we felt might need a training modification or there was a chance that they may not train that day, we would review them before 9 a.m., and then send another report to our coaching staff so they could plan the training session accordingly. We would do you prep from 9 till 10, so an hour of strapping. Sometimes some of the players will get a bit of treatment pre-training. Some of them will come in and check you know, things like needle wall or a groin squeeze if they've been having issues each day just to make sure that they're ready to go for training. And then the players have a meeting at 10 a.m. with our technical staff, and then we try to travel to training they have 15 minutes once they get off the bus to then start their prehab or preactivation. So they all have their individual programs, injury prevention programs that they complete. We allow 10 minutes for that. Some players will start a little bit earlier and some probably don't take up that time, but we generally allocate that 10 minutes. Then they'll warm up and do their training session. And within the training session, again, depending on, where our athletes are if we have anyone that's modified or not training we might have one of our medical team staff doing an off field conditioning session concurrently or someone doing some rehab running off to the edge of the pitch or people coming in and out of certain drills and then we would do rehab drills with them on the side so we had lots of individualized programs which I think partly contributed to our success but it also made it really busy as well And then following that, we would either have recovery and then that would be the players sort of done physically for the day or if we had gym, we would go straight into the gym, complete a gym session and then do recovery depending logistically on where we were. So we travelled quite a lot within the World Cup. That would only be possible if we had the gym on site. If we had to travel somewhere for gym, we'd go back to the hotel, eat and then go out again in the afternoon. In the afternoon, then for us it would be treatment and triage so we'd check any new issues from training treat anyone that we needed to treat by that time it's usually after dinner and then we have a triple sm meeting with our team and go through our entire squad list any issues any concerns their plans for the following day if someone if we're a bit unsure about what someone's going to do we usually will have sort of the two scenarios prepped ready to go so one if they're full training two if they're modified and what that would then look like and which staff member from us would take it so the next day in the session is planned well in advance. Then myself, our head sports scientist and our team doctor would go to our technical staff and have a meeting with them. And, again, we go through that full list of players, any issues, any flags for concern, go through the training session, who's doing what and where and then which ones we need to potentially review in the morning to then make that final decision on what they're going to do and usually we would then finish up anywhere from 10 o'clock to 11 30 at night so they're quite long days um, but I don't know I think you just kind of keep Going and going, going uh, and going and get through it somehow.
0: They are super long days, super long. Who? Are, what? What do you mean by technical staff? Are they more? That's our coaches.
1: So usually yeah. we, our head coach, uh, our head technical analyst, and sometimes our assistant coaches. So it would vary. Sometimes we'd have the whole group of them, and other times you just have a couple of them. Leaning into closer to game days, we'd have more of them in that meeting a bit further out. Sometimes you'd only have a couple of them and then they would transfer that information over.
0: And um, from your prep and you mentioned how it's individualised and I guess as an injury prevention um, program within that, uh, I guess, where does the, where does that come from? Is that something you guys ha- have assessed them, like the physio team personally or is it more uh, the S&C guys that may put some of that together? How does that sort of come out?
1: It's probably a bit of a mix. It's a it's really a team approach and it's also with the players' clubs as well. So, if we look at when we actually physically have our players in front of us, we have generally about six FIFA windows a year and if there's not a major tournament, the windows are about 10 to 12 days, so majority of their time they're actually with their clubs and majority, so over 50% of the injuries that our players suffer are also sustained with their clubs as well. So we because we have them for those short periods, we try not to change too much unless we need to. So, most clubs will have them set up on a gym program and a pre injury, uh, sorry, um, prevention program. And we'll continue that. And with some athletes, we've had input into that with the club. So, we generally have pretty good working relationships with most of the clubs. And because we've known these athletes for such a long time, we have such a good level of uh, knowledge on them that when they go to a new club, we share that and usually work with them towards coming up with, I guess, the best solution for each player. We have some who are at clubs where they're not as well staffed. So for those players, we then would do the program solely for, from ourselves, but we would always share that with the club so they can continue it as well.
0: Yeah, okay, lovely. And um, oh, I guess we'll, we'll chat a little bit later around some of the, I'm sure, the, the key stakeholders, the inputs you guys get in managing the players. Um, but I guess more around, I, I guess, a, a general framework around working in women's football and um, the injuries that may be different. Like, I guess, what sort of injuries do you see or deal with the most that m- may be different to what, you know, you might see in the, the soccer uh team?
1: Yeah, so there's a few. There's definitely There definitely is big differences and there is some similarities. We've had a big push with our injury surveillance. It's always been pretty good at Football Australia, but in the recent times we've sort of been aiming to try and get some research out there around our cohort because we have so much data on our female athletes and we know there's not that much literature out there about our athletes. So we have just in the process of doing a four-year injury surveillance report And from that, we still haven't finished it yet, but from that there hasn't been any real surprises. But if we look at uh, our sort of most like medical attention injuries, including time loss and non-time loss injuries, our most common themes would be hip and groin, which include pelvis, uh, knee and ankle. The only surprise that I think came from that is I feel like we treat a lot of back pain as well, so from travel sometimes even from uh, players in their menstrual cycle. We seem to get quite a bit of you know anterior thigh, posterior thigh that's driven from the back. So I feel like we treat quite a lot of that. But interestingly, that was probably number five on the list. So that's our most common three. But then if you look at the time loss ones, knee, ankle and quads came into that. And then the big one obviously there with knee is ACL in a female. So we know from the literature that up to six to eight more times a female is more likely to do that ACL than a male. And if you look at that across the Socceroos squad, they have probably had, you know, Kurt Lyle, their head physio, They he said they've probably had one since he's been involved and he's been involved for a long time, whereas us in the past, say just three years, we've had three or four in that time. And then if you look at our squad at any one point in time who've had a past history of an ACL, we could have six to eight players out of a squad of 23 who have had a past history, whether that was 10 years ago or three years ago, but the prevalence is just so much higher. And you know that once you have one of those, you lose them for nine to 12 months. So it makes sense that that's our biggest time loss. And I think um, the pelvis and groin stuff is, obviously the men get that quite a lot, but what we see is very different to what they see. We don't tend to have really acute muscular groin injuries we tend to have more gradual onset niggly tendinopathies pelvic driven pain that tends to be something that we deal with quite a bit and then our soft tissue stuff we we do get a bit of it we tend to get sort of more I'd say low grade again gradual onset or onset the the evening of or the day after, again, rather than those really big acute episodes of muscle injuries, although we have had them in the past, but they are less frequent than in the men's game. And one thing that we've found is that we tend to have to be a bit more conservative with low-level unilateral muscle soreness than perhaps what the men do. So the male players tend to be able to, to push on through that a little bit and not have a huge ill effect from that, whereas we've found with our players, that if we get onto it really quickly and it might only be modifying, you know, high speed meters for a day in long range kicking for someone with a bit of unilateral hamstring tightness, then it goes away and it's fine. But if we don't, or if the player doesn't report it, it then escalates relatively quickly and then you end up with a time loss injury that you maybe wouldn't have had prior to that. We had one of our physios that came into the World Cup works with um, men's AFL, and that was one thing that she just actually observed as well was the way that you had to treat unilateral muscle soreness was very different to how she treats it in the men. So she had to have such a lower threshold for adapting and modifying plays than what she would in the men's team.
0: Yeah, interesting. And I I guess I won't ask around um, the ACL side of things from a prevention because that's a whole other I guess topic and and podcast and much more uh, when you talk around the pelvic injuries and or the the groin and pelvis injuries being a little bit different and more tendinopathic and the like uh, how do you how is maybe that prevention aspect around the strengthening around that is it different do you target different areas um, and the follow-on thing with that I guess you mentioned the groin squeeze do you still find that as beneficial um, for this cohort and yeah how do, how do you balance all that together?
1: Yeah, the groin squeeze is definitely still beneficial. We find that it's probably, we did it say before our France Well Cut, we groin squeezed our players every day and we generally will do that if we're in a hard training camp before a tournament and it was one of the things that we noticed would start to drop as our players got fatigued. So we use it more as a, probably a fatigue marker and a recovery marker than anything else. Um. But I think with our our groins and our pelvises, they tend to, to prevent them. I think our girls have to do regular groin strengthening, so really good groin strengthening, but they also have to have really good hip rotation control. So that's one thing that I think we work a fair bit more on than, say, the men do is hip, hip rotation control and strength, groin strength within different ranges, and I think their single leg Stability and strength also plays into that as well, too. So I think it's probably just overall looking at a little bit of everything rather than just, you know, adductor strength in reducing their groin pain. We have to look at the deep hip rotators, their lower abdominals and their groin and also their single leg control as
0: well. Beautiful. All right. Um, Well, I guess uh, is there there some challenges, I guess, flowing on from that? Can you chat through some challenges in the management of uh, some of the female athletes in elite soccer? And I guess where I'm sort of angling there a little bit is um, I know there's been some stuff uh, talked about recently in the media around, you know, football boots not being designed for women um, and some of the the foot issues that might come off the back of that. And I guess these things that someone working in this environment for a long time is seeing regularly and seeing – Things that are lacking, but also what may be opportunities to improve moving forward. Is there anything that sort of stands out in that space for you?
1: Yeah, I think one thing that's quite unique to like my particular role is that we all of our athletes are based at different clubs all over the world. So the level of support, both staffing-wise and financial-wise, that they have is really variable. You have some who have everything at their disposal. You know, they have a great medical structure, great team, great facilities and then you have some who may have a physiotherapist who's there two days a week and may not be there at game day. So I would say that's one of the biggest challenges within the women's game is the variability of the support in the clubs and where I think some of the athletes have come from as well. So less professional teams. Now they're starting to get into these professional teams. Some of the leagues in UK and Europe are now – becoming very much more like the men's league where they've got cup games, champions league games. So match congestion is a really big thing and that's a really big change for some of our athletes coming from Australian-based teams where they play for three months of a year and going across there. So we always find that's really challenging getting them used to a different environment and match congestion. When you look at the boots, that's it's an interesting one. We definitely, we had a lot of issues with football boots leading into this World Cup because a lot of the manufacturers have changed the materials that they're using so a lot of them are going to vegan leather rather than using leather and a lot of our girls really struggled with that it's interesting when you actually talk to them about changing to a female boot because there is a few around now we do have one player who's with ASICS and she wears a football boot a female specific football boot and really likes it but some of the other ones are really resistant to change so even when you talk to them about there being a potential impact and the research obviously isn't quite there yet but when they're talking about you know the rotational traction forces of a boot you know with studs versus mold on different fields and then whether that's designed for a male body you know a male weight a male foot shape compared to a female how does that affect the female I think it's hard to get some of them to change because they've been wearing, you know, a narc tiempo for the last 10 years. So I think as that comes, I think only good things can come from that. And if we have more research to support that, I think it'll be really beneficial. And we have had athletes where we have had to get them to change their shoe sponsor because the shoe, the boots just don't suit their feet. And you can see even with the female foot, it's a different shape. Sometimes a stud placement is an issue and we get you know, metatarsal pain from different aspects there and we have to shave down. So we do use podiatrists quite regularly. I think it's a an area where we're interested in but we just don't know enough about it yet. But I do hope that in the future there will be every brand will have a female range that has just as many styles and colours because it sounds outrageous but some of them will be very reluctant to swap if it doesn't look right or it's not the same as what they're used to either so I think yeah it's a, a difficult one but hopefully in the future we'll have more about that and I think there can only be good that can come out of that of having a female specific boot
0: yeah lovely and I guess uh even some of the work there from that you're talking in reference to some some a paper there from Athel Thompson around the traction forces do you find in your role being, I guess, at the top echelon of where it is in sport that, you know, you could basically pick up a phone to anyone largely in the world and talk around some of the hot topics in these things. Um, and, you know, do you do you guys call on people like that at times? And um, I guess that's part A to this question, but part B is... Uh, I did mention stakeholders earlier and how do you handle and work with the range of different stakeholders that might, you know, uh, come to, into play and that includes like a high-profile player with their their club, you know, like an Arsenal or Man City or something telling you we want this done, make sure this happens and, you know, how, how does that all sort of play out?
1: Yeah, we, we always reach out to experts within different fields when we have different issues. I think that's the only way that you can get the best out of, what you need for the player, but also as a, a physio and as a medical team get only get better. So if you reach out to people that work in it, you know, every day or they have a particular expertise in that area, whether it's boots or, um, you know, ACLs or tendon problems, you know, we have sometimes those tricky injuries where you're just literally scratching your head, the club scratching your head. So for a while you have to talk to people. And I think that's a really important part. And we definitely do that. And we are lucky that Usually most people are willing to give up their time when they know that you work with an elite sporting team. But alongside of that, you've generally worked and come across, you know, a lot of incredible physios that you can within your network reach out to for help or assistance or just some advice as well. So we definitely do that and we did that throughout the World Cup too. And then with the stakeholders, so the clubs, it's been a really big, push that we've done is to establish really good relationships for the clubs because it makes everybody's life a lot easier so I think it was last year I went over and visited quite a lot of the clubs where our main players were at within Europe UK and the US and so meeting them face to face and that really helps so because I think it's always easier just to be able to pick up the phone and chat with them openly and honestly about you know what you're thinking what the players reporting and at the end of the day remembering that everybody wants the same outcome. And there probably is, you know, two or three different options that will get you there. And it's not one way is definitely not the right way all the time. But learning how to work with them is really important. And also, I guess, trying to influence what they're doing without seemingly telling them what to do or being too condescending or anything like that. So it's definitely been a a learning process and something that we work really well with. But thankfully, all the clubs are really amazing. And some of our players who they don't have great support of the clubs, the club staff, they're actually really happy for us to get involved and help them because as much as they're brilliant physios in their own right, they just literally don't have the time or the resources to do what they need to do. So we had one player based in Europe who the physio would regularly reach out to myself on the doc and just say, you know, we're having this problem. Can you help? What do you think? And, you know, we would help. So I would do a rehab planner up for them and plan out the week, plan out the content. They would have a look at it, add to it and then implement it on the ground. So it's definitely probably one of the biggest parts of our role, I think, and crucial in trying to get the best outcome for our players. And it's hard, I think, with players when they go to a new club and the club doesn't really know them, they don't know the club, they're not as comfortable often reporting to the medical staff initially, so they'll report to us. So establishing those relationships is crucial.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. That's the fact that you can get to the clubs, get face-to-face, I'm sure just like makes everything so much easier thereafter and I'm sure they'll be really happy with the management and service they're getting. Um, I guess one that would have had a lot of key stakeholders in it and within him um, involved. And obviously, I couldn't um, jump on a podcast and chat to you without probably the most talked about injury uh, that I can remember maybe, but certainly over the last couple of years in Sam Kerr's calf. And at times I was uh, – obviously, I was interested in what was happening from a physio standpoint, but I certainly wasn't uh, – envy. I was certainly uh, glad I wasn't in your position with the, the pressures that were there, I guess, external pressures, and it was such a um, – Hot topic. Uh, are you comfortable to take us through a little bit around um, how that maybe played out with the calf and what sort of degree of injury it was? And, you know, I guess some of your managements and chats that you guys went through.
1: Yeah, for sure. I, I spoke to Sam before this and told her that we were doing this, and she was more than comfortable for me to share more information. Obviously, we did share during the World Cup, um, but it was definitely your worst nightmare. You're, you know you're one of your best players one of the best plays in the world and your captain going down in the training session just prior to your first world cup game on home soil I don't think any of us could have really predicted anything worse happening and at that point we sort of had felt like we'd finally got everybody to a really good stage and I think one of our staff actually did say everybody's available and I said don't say that you don't say that and then that obviously happened um, it's obviously horrible for her as as a athlete too, who's been working towards this so hard for such a long time and she doesn't really, she's she does have an injury history but in the recent times she's been such a resilient player, plays every game for Chelsea, plays every game for us, really has no issues and then to come to your home World Cup and have something like that come out of the blue. We obviously straight away you just had to, Get over the fact that, you know, this was the worst case scenario and just start planning for it. So, we were training in Brisbane when it happened and we had our game in Sydney. So, we traveled that afternoon and her scan wasn't until that evening. She clinically tested not too bad on the field, but once by the time we got back to the hotel, obviously it had bled and then she's limping. And you go, right, well, she's no chance for playing tomorrow. And you're just wondering how that scan's going to report to see what the rest of the World Cup is looking like. But the planning was really different and as horrible as it to say, it's a really unique scenario that not very many sports physicians can be in where you can take many more risks than what you normally would with a soft tissue injury or any injury. So in this case, her club were amazing and they understood what was at stake and what that meant to Sam. So they were really supportive of us pushing and risking further injury for her which would then have impacted them when she then went back to pre-season so they were amazing with it Sam was incredible the whole time she was obviously just pretty much said I don't care about the risk just get me back on the field I'll do anything to be able to contribute and she was the perfect athlete to work with obviously did she didn't love it at all and she doesn't really love rehab or um, particular gym work but she did it with a a smile and was so professional. Um, But just the way that we had to approach it was so different and there was so much pressure coming from outside, but there wasn't that much from inside. Everyone within our camp handled it really well and just went, all right, it is what it is. Let's get on with it. The players just said, right, we have to do this without Sam. They got on with it too. But the external pressures were probably worse, you know, the media and we actually had a strategy of, being really open and honest with the media to try and help and limit that but for some reason they just felt like we were hiding things and the only thing we hid was the grade which I don't think in any major tournament you would give that away because it's going to give your opposition much better idea about when she's going to be back what she's going to be like um so yeah so it ended up was she had a 2c gastroc injury um so obviously not really what you want to see at that point but we had to look at the bright side and say well at least it's not soleus gastroc potentially we can deal with better but we went into you know detail so going back to the function of the muscle you know slow twitch versus fast twitch fibers when the re-injuries usually occur so steady state running even looking back into that peak calf demands at that sort of 18 k's an hour which that's our lower threshold for our high speed so that's our zone five high speed so planning all of those things meticulously down to a T of avoiding that was something that I did as a strategy so that we knew we we're controlling everything that we could control. But also we had to have so many conversations obviously about risk versus reward and that varied depending on where we were in the tournament. So we had five different plans for her once we had that scan in place. So one that we got through the group stage and didn't need to play her. So then we could delay her return until the knockout stages. And then obviously we had another one where we were in a position where we needed to win that third game of the group stage to continue on to the knockout stage. And unfortunately that's where we ended up. So after our loss to Nigeria, our second game, the first thing we thought when that whistle went was we just looked at each other and went, that's just affected that plan. So now we have a less than ideal plan even more time pressure than what we did before. But we had to prep for each scenario and even for the worst case, we had to make sure that we would prepped enough that if she had to play that third game, we wouldn't regret anything at that point but obviously not push enough that we made it any worse too. So we had lots of discussions about pain versus pathology and how what was our viewpoint on that and did we have any different stance because of what the situation we were in compared to normal and we did so we said it's unrealistic to expect no pain with an injury like this where we're trying to push her back within two weeks essentially so that was a really important thing and really important I think to involve her in as well so that she knew when she was doing things that we were okay with a level of pain and that was part of the plan so that mentally it didn't take a toll on her and it didn't stress her out. So I think being upfront with the risks and what we were expecting her to feel helped her too. So she knew, okay, that's fine. I can, you know, traffic light system. If it gets to this point, we stop. Get to this point, we change. If it's this, we're fine. So that was a really big, a big discussion. I think a big change in her management considering the position we were in that you wouldn't normally have. I mean, generally we would usually not lack any awareness during muscle rehab. So that's probably one big thing. And then another one was looking at all the little one percenters. So all your adjunct therapy, so injection therapies, hyperbaric chambers, compression ice, all of that sort of stuff. So where does that fit in? Where do we fit on that? Where does the research fit in with that? And I think with a lot of that stuff, you know, say hyperbaric chamber, we use that in the end because we felt that it was something that Anecdotally, the research is obviously not there, but it really had no risk. So, when we were sort of going risk versus reward, well, let's use it and see because we're not going to end up in a worse place for using it. And I mean, the research is even divided on using it for soft tissue infections and AVN in the hospital. So, we looked into it and sort of got our parameters. We spoke to a few experts who had used it previously. And again, it's a bit mixed results, but it was one thing that we thought, well, if we can get 1% from this, or even if it's just a placebo effect, then let's use it. So we ended up deciding on the first 10 to 12 days as being the most crucial, and an hour a day was what we did. And again, when you look back at hindsight, did it make an effect? You don't know, and we'll never know, but we felt like we had to throw everything at it at that point. So we did, essentially.
0: Yeah, certainly. That's amazing, amazing insight. From you, I, I was so intrigued around, obviously, and you talked to, and, and, you know, there'll be people listening who maybe didn't follow the World Cup as much, but obviously the games and, and sort of, you know, based on your win-loss and where the team was at, you're probably going to either have to risk her or, or not. Throughout that process in preparing to obviously, oh, let's say, maybe we need to play her in seven days, um, where do you start the running process? Um did you still, obviously, a reasonably significant injury there. Um, did you delay that as long as you could and then how did you bring that in and, and, and you know, how did you know when to get started?
1: Yeah, we did. So that was another big thing that, you know, we had to think long and hard about and as a team we discussed quite a lot what we had in terms of the timeframes as well. We had to sort of switch our mindset from trying to strengthen her calf to trying not to lose capacity and strength in the calf. So we completely switched that in terms of how we pushed it. So we probably chose to underdo some of the strength stuff, trying to just maintain some capacity. And we used strategies like trying to get her walking as quickly as possible, doing loaded walking, stuff in the water, uh, walking drills, stair walking. So once we felt like prepping for that running, we tried to mimic the actions of running so that stretch contraction cycle as much as we could so we used a lot of stair walking so literally at the hotel going down to the bottom floor walking up the fire fire exit getting into the lift going down the lift and then going back up again so getting her doing that and longer walks as early as we could without reproducing too many symptoms was one of the ways that we did that and then we used alter g And then we did really delay it. So, again, we went through what's the benefit of starting running now versus starting it in these next few days. So we obviously knew that she had to do something prior to a game, but we probably chose to leave it as late as we could and do the minimal to get her through and to also make her confident enough and for us to know that she could actually do it in that lead-up. And I think it might have meant that she might have only done, you know, one – or two sessions before that first game. So there was definitely nothing ideal about it and if you look at loading and prep-wise, but it was the only the only choice we really had because I think the worst scenario would be that we pushed her to run or pushed her in the gym and then she gets sore and then you have to turn around and go, actually, she's not available because we pushed her too hard in this scenario. So it was an evolving process and we just had to keep monitoring it. But essentially loading as much as we could the running, typical running, but at a lower level. So not in the running demands, but lower than that, we started that loading as early as we could.
0: You could tick it over with the the running that's not really running into those high-speed zones, knowing that, you know, you could potentially go into a match having maybe trained maybe once with intensity and um Side of things. So, how did, did, did then, did you just get to the point where, say, between those two games, you said, all right, well, we're going for this, and she just trains and she hits her high thresholds there, and, and you, you had some marks to get, or did you just say, go out and run around and, and train, but you don't need to sort of break any, any records because you're playing anyway? and Because you would have had to, I guess, you know. You probably didn't want to, the worst-case scenario to happen in the first five or ten minutes of a game, so you probably had to get some things covered to know, uh, okay, she can at least handle the part of the game and we'll do the modified minutes, which was, you know, 20 minutes or whatever it was, to, to know she could at least handle that.
1: Yeah, exactly. So we came up with – so we obviously looked at her match chart and the type of athlete she is, and she's an explosive athlete, so lots of acceleration, decelerations, lots of jumping. So her aerial game is one of her biggest – um, you know, things as an athlete, one of her biggest benefits. So we had to look at all of those things and then plan backwards and know, you know, how much she'll generally do in a 90-minute game, how much she doing do in 45, how much she doing do in 30, and we did. So we had criteria for each session. So we still tried to hit some of those markers knowing that we needed to balance out, I guess, being able to confidently know that, as I said, she's not going to break down in the first five minutes because that doesn't doesn't help anyone either. But then also trying to get her to do enough so that she can still perform and she can feel confident. So for each session, we had a a minimum of markers that we wanted to hit and then a maximum markers. And we designed the training sessions essentially around that and just had live GPS data there. But we also let her control that a little bit because she's an athlete who has a very good sense of awareness and what she needs in her body. So we had those guidelines and then we'll just check in with her and then there'd be an occasion where she would feel that she needed to do x y or z to be able to perform and we would look at that and try and come up with a drill or a scenario where we minimise the risk but allowed her to get what she needed to get out of it and as it went on we then would have this perfect plan And then depending on what the game was, you know, we would say, right, well, she ideally plays 15 minutes, but she may have then played more. So then after that, we would have to adapt that plan a little bit depending on how much game load she actually ended up playing. And again, it was even talking to the degree of, the ideal plan of her not warming up with the team because we didn't want her to warm up and then cool down and then go again. So planning for her to warm up at half time and then being ready to come on at this point and sitting down and going through scenarios. So right where nil all at half time, does she come on? We're one nil down, we're two nil down. And again, involving her in that discussion was really important because there was points where she said, well, I don't want to sit on a bench and not take that risk. I'm going to regret it if We're 2-0 down and I don't come on and try. I'm going to regret that for the rest of my life. So we involved her in those decisions and came up with the scenarios with the coaches of when we would pull the trigger to put her on but also the ideal scenarios that we had. And, I mean, nothing's ideal about it but that was the, the only way that we felt that we could control and make the best informed decisions and everyone could make the best informed decisions of each game but also manage it live so we wanted to reduce the chance of stress of a game making you make decisions that maybe you would regret later on so we had everything kind of mapped out and planned to a T, and everybody was across that plan including Sam so that there was no no real gray areas
0: yeah that that actually uh, watching from afar came out really clear and evident that you know the planning and discussions and conversations that would have happened uh, and just listening to the head coach speak, that is, that was really clear that obviously you guys were on a really tight ship and and kept all that stuff together. Did um, From the game, the return game was how many days post-injury? Well,
1: right that forward. was, so we were in the situation where our third group game against Canada, we had to win. But thankfully, our girls played so well she didn't have to go on. So it would have been the... First, so the round of 16, which was it was under 20 days,
0: yeah, yeah, nice See? and tight. And, and, and I guess, in, in doing that, you're let's say you're running a standard calf rehab program, you'd probably have a few metrics in there to sort of test off their strength and to know that, yep, they can absorb that force and they can jump or hop or or what have you. I'm tipping some of that would have gone out the door. Did, was there an element of uh, still some testing other than just your standard clinical tests or, or was it more about hey we're just going on you know the, the, the feel and where you guys felt it was at and some of those conversations you had around pathology and pain
1: yeah so normally we would always test so an endurance test you know peak plant know force plate testing that sort of thing we would always do that to then know that an athlete can do xyz and will handle the demands that you're about to place on them but when we're in this scenario if you look at that we sort of felt will that change anything so if she doesn't test well on an endurance test is that actually going to change our clinical decision making or is she still going to play anyway and we went with she's still going to play anyway so we're going to take extra risk and that's going to be the risk and she's going to play so is there actually a benefit of collecting that data because if we're not going to do anything with it are we just then risking making her sore by testing her sub maximally or maximally, which could then affect it? So we actually didn't do any formal strength testing at all. We did with some of her isometric exercises. We got her to do them while she was on force plates, mostly just for us to have a bit of an idea. And we would test, you know, a couple of calf raises, calf stretch, you know, your classic tests. But we wouldn't do any, didn't do any sub max or maximal testing. That was one thing that we all agreed on that. It had more risks than it did benefits, and it wasn't actually going to change any of our clinical decision making, so we sort of scrapped that.
0: And when uh, you did play or or go out there, how are you feeling? Like, did we? uh, I know sometimes if I am watching games where I've got a player who's maybe under a bit of risk, I am sort of hearts in my mouth most of the game. Was it a little bit like that, or you sort of just felt uh, felt comfortable with the whole scenario and where things were at, and however it came out was fine?
1: Yeah, I definitely think. I was very relieved that game against Canada where she didn't have to come on because I was really worried about that game. And I knew that we, we probably like weren't quite where we needed to be for her to actually do that. I don't think I could say that I felt comfortable or confident anytime when she went on. Normally, I think, you know, that you've prepared an athlete really well and that they're going to get through it. And they're trained enough that, you know, they're going to get through it. And this was such a different scenario, but I knew that we'd done everything that we could and we'd done everything in our control. She'd done everything in her control. So sort of what will be will be. I think that kind of helped us not be quite so nervous on there. I think the first game she went on, she actually tweaked her hips. We went down and you could tell everyone in the crowd and even when she went down, I was like, oh, no. And I sort of looked at it again. We've got They've got iPads on the sides. We looked again and I was like, that's not her calf. Okay, no, she's fine now. So that was one moment where I definitely, my heart was in my mouth. Um, but the further she got through, I mean, she's an incredible athlete and I don't think if this situation was put on every athlete that they could get through what she got through and perform. And you can't say that it wouldn't have affected her performance because I think she probably was definitely wasn't at her peak, but for her to even come out and perform like she did is just outrageous. I think it just shows that she's just a freak of an athlete and an incredible person.
0: Yeah, an amazing uh, uh, athletes are as good as their high performance and medical team around them. So there's certainly no doubt that um, you guys played a really big part in all that. So it's something you should be really proud of, I think. Um, you know, obviously everyone will look at the Matildas and they did do an amazing job, but you guys played such a key role and... Um, yeah, you must feel pretty proud uh, with that, and, and you guys, the rest of your, your sort of team that you work with must have had a moment sort of after the World Cup was all over and said, oh, well done, that was like a, a good job, and, and we did well there. Was that sort of, did that happen, or were you sort of just uh, all part and parcel?
1: Yeah, we did. I think we sort of semi-celebrated every time she got through a game and, and did okay and wasn't too much worse off afterwards, and at the end, I think there was definitely a sense of what we'd achieved and... Because I think if you looked at her scan and her clinically when it happened, you would have just written her off. But again, because it was a World Cup, you're not going to send home a player of that calibre. You know, your coach is going to take every chance he can get, even if she only plays 10 minutes, that's going to be worth it because in that 10 minutes, Sam Kerr can score a winning goal and win you a World Cup. So we definitely had a moment where at the end... Where, yeah, it was really, we were really proud and really happy with what we did. And we sort of went back through everything a few weeks after we'd finished. And there wasn't much that we would have changed in that process. So I think all of the planning and the detail that we went into was all worth it in the end. And yeah, I mean, it was an amazing experience as a physio, a horrible experience for an athlete, but an amazing experience for a physio. And I think we learn a lot through that process as well.
0: Um, that's unreal. What would your final one, on, I guess, you mentioned learnings there and I was going to ask this but, um, you know, you've sort of probably talked through through it mostly, but what were some of your key learnings, like, uh, I guess, to, to, to really step away from that as a physio more holistically and what you might take into the next phase of, you know, management and career? Was there anything that really stood out for you?
1: Um, I think, do you mean in terms of, like, Sam's particular injury or, like, the world? Uh,
0: Probably just around, yeah. Probably just around a learning in the sense of managing injuries and and the context and the people and things like that.
1: Yeah, I or the, think or the injury. Yeah, I think managing the athlete first, more so even than the injury. So knowing the athlete was a really big one for us. So we knew how a lot of them, particularly how Sam works, and so the way that we approached that with her would be very different to how we'd approach it with some of our other athletes. And I think that's a big factor in managing them throughout the tournament as well. I think the planning, so making sure so we had individual plans for all of our players because they all came in at different levels from different injuries, managing their minutes and how we got their minutes in the lead up, I think that was probably one of the things that really paid off for us in the end. So I think all the the work and the planning and whilst it seemed a little bit over the top probably before that, I think it really paid off for us. And then the other one is is that there's so many different ways that you can rehab the same athlete and the same injury and get a good outcome, but that often, you know, you you can sometimes and sometimes it is worth taking those risks because without them you may never end up with the scenarios that we ended up where she actually ended up playing, whereas you would have written her off at any other point in time. So, you know, it does make you wonder whether sometimes are you too conservative with some things But, again, I think that's hard to quantify and decide because, you know, the decisions that we made were because of what was at risk and, you know, you're not in a home World Cup very often, if ever. So I don't think we'll ever be faced with that scenario again, but I think you definitely learn from it that sometimes maybe you can have a little more flexibility with things and maybe trust some athletes more than you can with others to have an input. You know, you always have those ones who feel like they can do more and maybe sometimes listening to that a little bit more than being so rigid and saying no. But at the same time, we definitely have athletes where you just can't do that. You have to pull them up as well. So I think just knowing that athletes probably the biggest take-home that helped us through the whole tournament.
0: Yeah. Mate, that's been uh, amazing insights uh, to both World Cup experience, your pathway and your career, which I think has, you know, stood, you know, you've d- done the work all the way through and, and, and led you to where you are now. So it's a really great journey to hear. And then obviously your experiences through the World Cup and, 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 and being open and appreciate uh, obviously that insight around uh, Sam Kerr's injury and also Sam for allowing you to talk about that it is amazing. So uh, thank you very much and thanks for, for jumping on board. Thank you, thanks for having me.